flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I have to confess, I have had a beer. <laughs> I am very excited to talk to you guys tonight, in part because I am joined by one of my faves, Walker Bragman, a journalist, reporter, intrepid and otherwise, from the Daily Poster. Walker, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bree. I it's have a real... to say, you're one of my favorites, too. <laughs> Walker, you're a delight, and I'm so glad to talk to someone who's actually been tracking a lot of the COVID news over time, because I confess that like a lot of people... I checked out at a certain point. It became overwhelming. The information became too kind of politicized. It was so difficult to figure out what was true and what wasn't. The only real reporting that was breaking through was culture war related and and couched in terms of what Rogan did or did not say and not substantive. And so I'm glad to have you here to help us walk through some of the goings on. Yeah, no, it's it's been I, I totally understand checking out. It's been completely depressing. Um, and yeah, but but I I've stuck with it because I feel like somebody's got to do it. And it's a big money and politics story. So tell us about that. Tell me about some of the, the most recent pieces that you've written, because we talked about this about a year ago, a week ago. I'm not sure if you've there's been any follow up or anything more recently that you've written that you prefer to discuss? But, no, I, I haven't uh, since, but I'm sorry, I just interrupted you. No, 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 please. I, tell, tell me about what you've written about most recently that we should know about with respect to where, where we are um, with, the, with COVID and how it's being politicized and what the Biden, uh, Biden administration is doing at present. Well, uh, I, my most recent article is about the school debate and how mm-hmm. we got to where we are, where Basically, all of America's schools are open. They're mask optional. um, And uh, public health experts are sort of scratching their heads and saying, like, what the hell happened? Like, why? Why are we here? And my story tracks the big money that has been waging uh, a campaign, a public pressure campaign to get us to this point. Um, And the, the school part, the school, like... The story about schools is part of a larger um, business-backed effort to return the country to normal um, that's been going on really since March 2020. Really, mm. when the camp, when the when the pandemic started, I mean, business interests like the Chamber of Commerce, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the Americans for Prosperity, and a bunch of other Coke-affiliated groups have been pushing to get to get us back to normal because for the sake of, of corporate profit. And so that's, that's what I've been covering lately and, and trying to shine a light on because I feel like much of the conversation that we're having uh, would do to have that sort of in the background as context. Yeah, there's, this, there's this really interesting kind of uh, cluster, these different clusters of interests that, that are not easy to predict and which intersect and conflict in different ways. So you have a camp of people 
most of whom I would argue lean kind of right libertarian that are frustrated by the um, the idea of mandates, both intellectually as just like a general suspicion of government overreach and mandates, which I have some sympathies for as a libertarian socialist, and also because they've been like kind of directly politicized by the Republicans who have made a political issue of this regardless of how they actually feel substantively on the merits, whether it's about um, kind of uh, independence from government overrule or speech issues or, or health concerns or whatever it is. And then there are parents who, because of our lack of childcare uh, and, uh, and kind of uh, the ability to afford non-school-related child support in their lives, and because we don't have a infrastructure to allow people to many people to continue to work from home, are very much for turning turning their kids to school because what else is the alternative? Their ability to work and survive depends on them being able to return kids to school. And then you have this reality that the Biden administration itself has kind of pivoted from very much criticizing and being and politicizing um, and being uh, critical of Trump's COVID response. I think rightly so, per you know the episode with uh, John Nichols that we aired today, where he you know outlines all of the ways in which you know so many lives could have been saved by a different kind of COVID response you know during the first year. And at the same time is now pivoting to, oh, no, we're done. We're giving up. We have to return things to normal because it's now a political liability for us and not a political liability for Donald Trump because he's not running and it's a midterm year. And it leaves you feeling – it leaves me, I'll just speak for myself, feeling very uncertain about how to even speak to these kinds of issues because I know that saying one thing or another can be deeply alienating to folks, sometimes for good faith reasons and sometimes for bad faith reasons. So I'm curious, how do you parse all this? Because what you just described with the big business interests being behind the return to normal, that seems to me to be the case when it was Trump and it's the case when it was Biden. But people's response to that is very, very different depending on whether it was Trump saying it versus Biden saying it. And there are people who are... Now, Biden bros, who are uh, completely on board with this idea of returning to normal because, you know, they're liberal. What, I mean, how, how are you negotiating all of this? So I have to tell you that I've found that the divide is not quite – I mean, the, the trend is not quite as stark uh-huh. as what, what you're describing in my experience, at least. That, okay. that you know, people, people who are criticizing Trump's approach – there are definitely liberals who are now like – fully on board with whatever Biden's doing. But I'm seeing a a lot of skepticism, even among sort of more centrist people toward the the Biden administration's approach. I think the, the, the big story here, how I how I parse this and how I approach it is that our pandemic response from the beginning has been has been driven by by business Mm -hmm. and has tried to we've tried to that campaign has sort of tried to focus us on individual choices about risks and benefits and values. And you know, you can't have mandates because we can't have a collectivist response. But if you are any sort of leftist at all out there and, and looking at this, and I know that it's difficult and I know that it's politically charged, but this is, this is 2009 all over again. This is a major social disruption where millions of people are suffering. We have lost a million Americans to this virus. Our healthcare system has been has been exposed and found 
desperately wanting our our public health infrastructure. We have none. Our willingness to provide for people and adopt a, a humane strategy that 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 recognizes that a, a airborne virus is a collective problem. Uh, we don't have we don't have that in in this country. Neoliberalism has been exposed in the same way it was in 2009. And leftists really need to be out there talking about about the fact that, you know, this is a moment where collectivism and a collective response is necessary. There is a role for government, the federal government, a strong federal response to prevent massive loss of life and massive uh, human misery. I mean, death is not the only problem that this that this mm-hmm. disease causes. It leaves people debilitated. It ages their immune systems. I've talked to, like, I've I, I can't I've lost count of how many medical experts I've talked to and how, who are just at you know at their wits' end here. I mean, this is this is two thousand nine all over again. People should be active and demanding more. That, that's what just my you, my take. What, what do you think? Because part of part of my issue, you know, you know, because you also are someone who has had a relationship with a legal career. <laughs> um, my my thinking about this always goes back to some kind of kind of balancing test, where I'm thinking to myself: there's obviously a time and a place. There are instances where you have to. I would I would acknowledge, regardless of my kind of you know instincts against um, the concept of mandates. That things have to be done for the collective good, as you point to. And when do you decide when that's the case? Well, there's certain kinds of balancing tests to assess whether or not the government need is sufficiently legitimate to have that kind of a, a moment. And part of what frustrates me is that when I go down to do this kind of balancing test, the need, the, the, the validity, the exigency that exists right now in the, because of the severity of what COVID means for individual health, public health, and the economy is obvious. What's not as obvious to me is whether or not the government has done as much to encourage compliance as it could short of mandating and whether or not some other kind of compliance motivating behaviors might even be more effective than mandates where we've seen, you know, people choose to quit their jobs, healthcare workers and others choose to leave rather than comply with mandates. What do you make of that? Do you th- do you think at all about whether there are things the government could have done differently to encourage non-compliant people or vaccine-hesitant people to go ahead and get the jab short of making it mandatory for them to keep certain kinds of jobs? Uh, look, I'll be honest. I, I think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. I just – I I don't have much sympathy for the people who are like, you know, but my freedom in this situation. I'm like, you know, it's a public health emergency if this is – if this – if there's any moment – where government should be acting and 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 forcing compliance for for this, it's it's certainly with a life saving vaccine in a public health crisis that's killed a million people. That said, I do acknowledge that if we had a national health care system or even a public option like Biden campaigned on, um, we we would go a long way, I think, to restoring some kind of faith in America's institutions. Which is necessary for people to 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 be um, more trusting, I guess, of, of government. Mm-hmm. Like the the campaign against against um, I would say New Deal era uh, governance 
has has been twofold. On the one hand, it's been chip away at the government and make it make it uh, less efficient and less responsive to people. On the mm-hmm. other side, call it out and say government can't function. And those those two uh, prongs sort of function like a like a pincer movement. They mm-hmm. come together and they're they're overwhelming and and powerful and. And a lot of people, and even people who who feel that they are on the ostensibly on the left, uh, have have adopted or embraced some of this some of this anti-government ideology. And it's I'm not saying that it's that there are not legitimate reasons for skepticism of the federal government of the way it operates. It's it is beholden to big money. Um, but the scandal with this pandemic is not that the government is conspiring with industry to take away people's rights. It's that government is conspiring with industry to to allow industry to force them back into unsafe workspaces, mm-hmm. to risk their families for survival, that we won't do more to provide for people at a time when there is a disease that we don't know enough about we still are learning about this virus and with new variants we learn more and like we're having to learn more and more like this is this is the crisis next to climate change this is the crisis of our time and it's the start i i think this is the first of of many pandemics that humans will face in a climate altered world so we got to get this right and we got to like we got to make adjustments and we have to abandon this sort of neoliberal approach that is just killing people. Yeah. The long COVID of it all is, has always been my, my sticking point. Um, you know, I need my last two brain cells to be <laughs> functioning <laughs> during a living at this point. And it really is concerning to me how um, dismissive folks are about the implications of COVID, even post-vaccination for so many people. And I've had conversations with folks from the disability community who are very upset about the way that their needs have been completely cast aside and how the conversations about public masking and and those sorts of things ignore their continued vulnerability uh, to the virus. I want to get more into that, but first I want to go ahead and and get some some comments in here. I'm going to hop around the queue a little bit today, as I've been doing recently, to get some new voices in the chat. Let's hear from Gez. Gez, you are the next caller. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Gez, did I scare you away? That's okay. Let's hear from Paul. Paul, you are the next caller. Unmute yourself with the button in the bottom right hand. There you go. Oh my God. Hi. Hi. (laughs) I am reporting live from Widener Library here, so I'm going to try. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) we got a Harvard kid in the house. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. So full brain worms mode. The uh, academic elite has annihilated <laughs> my ability to do critical thinking, but I will try my best here for you. What's what's crackalacking in Widener? Do you know, fun fact, so Widener's like the main big library on campus for folks who don't know that's existed for a million years and I'm sure has a million uh, historical factoids about it. But my experience in college was that nobody ever went in there except for a handful <laughs> of us kind of, kind of deep, hardcore humanity major types. So like my college boyfriend, yeah. who was like a, a economics major, literally never stepped foot in the library all four years of college. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah I, and I would, um, I, I would, I was cheap, 
and I didn't want to buy any mm. books. So I would go to any library. I would go to the quad library. I would go to the end of the earth to find the last copy of Antigone for some core class so I didn't have to pay for it. So I lived up in there. I hung up there. I was the only one who ever went to Hollis, you know. But I was shocked to learn that so many other students just never went into any of the libraries. But I'm sorry, nobody cares about this. What 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 are you what is your question for me today, Paul? Well, I think I don't know, with all this the the COVID situation, it's interesting because our school is one of the first to sort of like shut everything down really, really quickly and be mm. like, you know, nobody on campus, nobody do this, nobody do that. And we're sort of first now, like masks have just become optional on campus. And every mm-hmm. classroom is sort of doing their own thing. It's like some of us are like, oh, you know, it's all good for anybody to do whatever they want. And then some are like, oh, we want everybody to be in masks, except like the professor who is, you know, six feet away from us and doing doing their thing. Um, but it's just mm-hmm. like the piecemeal of it. It's like, obviously, cases are on the rise. Everybody and their mother is getting the disease. And I'm so conflicted about, you know, like, should we think of this now as an endemic situation it's like you're gonna be exposed to risk no matter what like what's the you know there's no clear nobody's putting a clear path forward for for any of us yeah i mean walker what do you say about that because i i know that my building recently sent an email out saying that you know masking is over for the building and now I feel like a crazy person for having a mask on in the elevator. And it's a very social building and people are like looking and chatting and wanting to be friendly in common spaces. And I feel like I'm being a misanthrope by having my mask on. Look, but, yeah, you're, go ahead. Not, you're not, you're not wrong to protect, to want to protect yourself from this virus. It, the, we're all, look, we're all younger people. The, the odds are of us getting you know, severely ill from it or, you know, are lower than they would be if we were, if we were older, but you are not wrong to want to shield yourself from this. And yeah, it does feel a little, it does feel a little bit like you're, you're the uh, odd one out, right? I, I experienced that too. When I, when I go grocery shopping and I'm one of the few people wearing a mask, but it's important to realize that the public health decisions that have been made have not been made based on what experts in the field are saying. They've been, they've been influenced by public pressure and politics. And it's, 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 uh, you, you should protect yourself from this, from this virus. It can have even mild infections can have long-term health consequences. There's still so much that we don't know. Again, there's, and, and, and frankly, I would direct everybody to an article that, that came out in, in Protean magazine two days ago, um, by Abigail Cardis uh, of Brown University. She's an epidemiologist at Brown University and Justin Feldman, an, L- an epidemiologist at, at Harvard's FXB Center. Um, and it's an, it's, an, it's an article analyzing and, and, and taking down the uh, Emily Oster and her sort of economic analysis of how to, how to assess risk in, in the pandemic. I would encourage everybody who's having these, facing these questions themselves to, to read that article because this is this is a a very difficult situation to be in because we're we're people who who want to see more action on this and want to see uh, um you know big a bigger government response are very much uh, ostracized to the to the to the outskirts of the conversation even if poll after poll shows 
large public support for things like mask mandates. So, so, so tell me, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I'm just, I have not heard a clear situation with long COVID. I've heard a lot of anecdotes. I'm just, I'm curious, Walker, Rihanna, if you have any sort of insight on what the, the moving scientific consensus is on long COVID. My understanding is that they're, that it's still very much new, that they're, that they're learning more about it, that it's shifting definitions for, um, especially in young people, it's shifting definitions for, uh, uh ailments that we're, we're seeing in, in adults. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's hard to assess. This is sort of my point that it's hard to assess risk when there are so many unknowns. This is a novel virus. It's, it's evolving very quickly. We're seeing uh, wave after wave every few months. I mean, this is like, you know, we'll, I'm sure, I'm sure that down the road we'll, we'll know a lot more and, and the, the consequences will become even more clear than a million dead. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard to, 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 to make these calls when, when you don't know much about it. And I, I would note that the, the people who are saying, you know, well, we have to get back to normal. It's got to. It's got to get. It's got to be time for, for that. Don't really engage with with the numbers. I mean, there's there's a lot of denial among that crowd. I'm not saying everybody, but uh, you know, there's a, a streak of like, oh, with COVID or from COVID, or are you sure? Like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult with this kind of thing. I mean, I'm looking at an article, a recent article from The Guardian, titled "Long COVID Could Create a Generation Affected by Disability." Expert warns. And here's here's a here's a paragraph. According to data from the Office for National Statistics, by the end of January this year, about 1.5 million people, or 2.4 percent of the population in the UK, said they were experiencing ongoing symptoms more than four weeks after their first suspected COVID infection. With 45 percent reporting that infection was a year or more ago. The findings chime with a recent UK study that found only uh, around one in three patients who had ongoing COVID symptoms after being hospitalized with the disease reported feeling fully recovered a year later. Only one in three hospitalized people felt fully recovered a year later. Asked whether long COVID could lead to a generation affected by disability, Altman agreed totally. <laughs> I love how we all talk like Cher Horowitz. Um, she emphasized that long COVID is not limited to the UK. This is a global problem. We've got at least 5 million people on the planet with long COVID. That is very much a lower limit estimate. And they've got all got a wide array of problems, and they are big problems, going to drive people out of housing, out of work, and in some cases to suicide. I was talking to an immunologist who said that COVID like messes with your T cells and, and, and ages your immune system and in, in that, that based on his research ages, your immune system that in ways that, that could result in lower life expectancy. Like this is, you know, it's, it's, it's very much uh, up in the air, I think where there's a lot, there's a lot that we don't know. So uh, this, yeah. is, this is sort of my point that like when we make the public health response about individual choices and, you know, when you when you boil freedom down to your individual choice, whether you're going to get vaccinated or wear a mask, it, it, it misses the forest for the trees. Like real freedom in this pandemic is freedom from infection and and right. peace of mind, knowing that you're you don't have to risk it. Uh, in order to to survive, that would be freedom in in a pandemic. Paul, uh, let me ask you: What kind of rationale is being given 
for the decisions around masking on campus right now? Are they citing any kind of medical indication or is it just kind of like, oh, well, we've been doing this long enough? Well, I'm sitting in front of my computer so I can pull up the last COVID email. Of the school mm. Ooh, yeah. go for it. <laughs> So we call primary sourcing. <laughs> We're doing journalism right now, guys. Yep. We're going to do it in real time. <laughs> okay. So from our dean of associate dean of something or other, assistant dean for student affairs, no medical studies. It's mostly just like practical stuff like, um, you know, faculty can choose to wear a mask while they're lecturing. There are now new, like there were spaces where it's like, here's where you can eat and take your mask off. And then here's all the spaces where it's like not okay. And now they've expanded the like optional mask wearing space. But it's not like this is the study that we're looking at. This is why we're we're doing this. Um, I mean, it's so frustrating because I just saw a report of some school in some other part of the world. I think it was somewhere in Europe where they realized that if they installed these ventilators in the classrooms, that they brought down incidences of COVID spread like 80% down. Like it had a real huge impact, right? So I could see a world where one of these institutions that's extremely well-funded, like Harvard, said, okay, we've installed over the summer. What we've been doing is we installed, or over the winter, whatever, we installed all of these um, air purification systems in all the classrooms, and consequently – we think we're in a place where it makes sense not to require professors to mask. Everyone else can do it optionally. Right. Mm -hmm. But just like doing it based on vibes, <laughs> which is the well, field. Okay. <laughs> I found, yeah, it's CDC and changes in regulations from the cities of Cambridge and Boston and local officials or something like that are our officials that we are consulting. Based yeah. on what? Here's here's the problem. The CDC itself is 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 a political body, and it right. should be understood as such. And in fact, the CDC has this this article I told you about in in Protean about Emily Oster. The CDC has cited Emily Oster in revising its guidance against um, six foot social distancing down to three to three foot social distancing. And Oster is a notoriously terrible. Uh, uh, I, 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 researcher, I, I, her, she's sloppy. Her work is uh, prone to bias. She's being funded by Peter Thiel, uh, Charles Koch. I mean, the Walton family. It's not a reliable source. People. She, she's not, an economist at Brown. Am I right? Yeah, she's what an more than we have to know. <laughs> Look, Bree, I'm sure you you're familiar with the law and economics theory. How economics has pervaded every other field. And it's it, it's reached a point of, uh, uh, you know, no offense to anybody who studies economics, but it's it's kind of a pseudoscience, right? Like, how do you value yeah. a human life? And and every time they try to apply uh, economics to, to like in 2009, when you try to apply like economic theory to, to real world um, situations, it just results in policy failure. You, you can't. Have you, you read have her? To... Have you read her latest in The Atlantic? Oh, God, what is it? It's I, from I, March 9th. It's called Masking Policy is Incredibly Irrational Right Now. Subtitle, gotcha. Why Must Only the Youngest Children Wear Face Coverings? Oh, my God. Oh, professor, just shut the fuck up, please. Just I mean, stop. Do, do, do you know what the gist of this is? What is the gist of this going to be? I, I have not I have not read it. But what I what I can say is that every again, everyone should read this article. She is a she is a poor authority. 
on public health and should not be considered one. It is, she undeniably has blood on her hands. I, there's no polite way to say that. It, it, it's, and, and you do sound a little bit like a crazy person when you say something like that, but it's true. These, these people care more about, uh, billionaires care more about their, their profits uh, upper echelon, you know, white parents care more about their convenience. Uh, we have reduced everything down to this individualistic mentality, and it's just, it's killing uh, working class and people of color disproportionately. And it's, it's that, just. That, that, that is an interesting aspect of this dynamic where I would have thought that the most gung ho folks would have been people who had a harder time affording childcare. But it does seem like the folks leading the charge, maybe it's all parents feel the same way and the ones that get a voice are the ones, you know, that are more affluent and disproportionately white. Nope. Poll after poll. Poll after poll. It's, it's mostly upper, upper class white parents. Why are they so pressed about their kids? Like, do they hate their kids that much? (laughs) Why are they so pressed about their kids staying home and like wearing a mask? Well, white collar jobs, it's hard to do a white collar job from home. It's, you know, with your kid around, like, look, Parents are mm. undeniably under stress there. And it is true that disruptions to schools are disrupting children's learning and socialization. That is, that is true. But you know what disrupts that stuff even more? A parent dying because the kid brought COVID home or a grandparent who lives with the family dying or the kid getting long COVID or ending up on a ventilator and missing school. Like, like why? And, and granted, children have, have um, better outcomes with COVID statistically. And overall, the risk is much lower to children. But, you know, who wants to roll the dice with their kid? This is a moral outrage. And this is, you know, every day I find myself just like morally outraged at the way that this country has handled a public health emergency. If we can't get this right now, if we can't say there is a role for government and it needs to do more now, then we have no business saying that in any other situation. I mean, what's next? Climate change? They're going to say no mandates, my freedom. You know, this is this is the playbook that they're going to trot out every time. It's a it's existential for for human beings. What was interesting, I, I went on uh, Megan Kelly's show a couple of months ago now, and we had this conversation. And when I raised the issue of, you know, people bringing home COVID to grandparents, she was, you know, largely, I mean, we, not not especially sympathetic. I mean, I do think that there is a little bit of a, a I don't, I'm sometimes worry of the leftists attributing everything to class, but I do think that, you know, most more affluent people aren't in the scenario where they have multiple generations living in one household. And I, I do understand that that even among the totality of the population is a relatively small minority of folks. And maybe there's a question about whether to build public policy around of that. But at least be honest about what you're saying, that you're making a policy decision to basically sacrifice this older generation because you don't want to do something in the alternative. you got to at least make the case for why you don't want to do the thing in the alternative. Exactly. And the immunocompromised. I mean, yeah. this is – we are telling people who are uh, – who need a collective response to to this virus that their lives are worthless i find that very hard to stomach i mean i a while ago uh brie i was listening to you and you were saying that um your you view things through a very humanist lens where and, and that is first and foremost in in your mind when when you approach problems and i'm very much the same way like i like 
how can we avoid human destruction here? How can we avoid the harms that are happening that we're seeing? I mean, my my best friend from middle school, his dad got COVID early on in the pandemic and it killed him in a week. Oh, I'm so sorry. My friend's mom was a, a nurse early on in the pandemic. She got COVID and then oh. she had an operation, uh, a serious operation on her heart. And, you know, who who knows if the, if the COVID had weakened her, but she ended up passing. I mean, uh, my other friend's grandmother died from, from this horrible virus. People talk about, about this, you know, in terms of statistics and we lose the human aspect of it. I mean, watch videos of somebody on a ventilator or, or who can't, who, who can't manage to speak to respond or, or like can barely wave at family. Like this is, this is serious. And whether or not it's serious for you, that, that is not what's important. What's important is that it is serious for other people and you don't know who those people are going to end up being. I mean, I, millions of people in this country have a pre-existing condition that could make them vulnerable to, to COVID. So what, Their I, lives are, are, have value. I want to ask you, Walker, how do you, how do you negotiate this? I mean, you've written this article about all of these um, business interests that have been pushing for people to return to work and return to normal and schools to open and everything. And, it also is true that there's this critique that is largely, unfortunately, happening through the vessel of, like, Tucker Carlson, because mainstream media isn't touching it, about all of the profits that the pharmaceutical company ha- companies have, you know, incurred, about there needing to be, you know, a fourth shot and whether or not it's going to be free this time around and how much Pfizer and Moderna have made from this and the choice to um, – to, to race to create a vaccine that had to be like deep frozen in a way that wasn't going to be helpful to the global population, but would allow Pfizer to get that first juicy government contract and all of these things that have demonstrated the pernicious influence of capitalism in vaccine development that has created a level of distrust, which is not ill-founded. It, you know, the, it's not just in the efficacy of the vaccine, but distrust in exactly what we're being told about how long we have to vaccinate and all of these things because of all the money that's being made. How do you reconcile this? Because the business interests, capitalism is kind of pushing in different directions here. And how do you how do you address people's skepticism when you share your concerns about the influence of capitalism in this realm, but also still for public health reasons, want people to go ahead and comply? I would say look at the lobbying disclosures on who opposed and who supported the vaccine mandates. Businesses were like it was unanimous opposition to the vaccine or test mandate. It wasn't just the vaccines. It was vaccinate or get tested once a week. Business community overwhelmingly opposed it. And you know who I didn't find weighing in on that? Pfizer or any any manufacturer of of uh, the vaccines. The scandal here with with these drug companies is not that they are you know, pushing vaccines that we don't need. It's that they're hoarding the intellectual property for vaccines that the world desperately needs. If you really want to stick it to Pfizer, if you're somebody out there who says, you know, I hate these companies, they do bad things. The the way to do that is to take away the life-saving miracle drug that they created and distribute it to the rest of the world so that the global South has access to it. And we don't keep creating variants that necessitate people in, in, in the U.S. and Europe uh, get more and more shots so that they can stay ahead while millions of brown people get in, get infected and die. I mean, that is that's my response. It, it, I, I have it's you know, it is a little frustrating for me um, 
to, to hear people who are like, well, you know, oh, you're, you must be a spokesperson for Pfizer. Why don't you look at Pfizer's lobbying and then you tell me what their, what their concern is. Their concern isn't, isn't, you know, mandating that people get the vaccine. It's making sure that their intellectual property is protected. Yeah. It seems to me that if, if Biden administration or whomever wanted to really cut through all of that, what they would say is if you're concerned about Pfizer's profits, if you're concerned that they're trying to get you to take a fourth and fifth and sixth jab or whatever, because they want to earn money, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure they don't profit. We're going to have an excess tax, uh, like, um, an excess profit tax the way that uh, John Nichols was talking about in the episode. We're going to do other things to make sure that this there is no profit motive in this because of the public health emergency that's being presented right now. Maybe this is a good time. You normally just near the top of the episode to play a quick clip from the episode, and then we'll go and get some more questions. I appreciate your feedback, by the way, Paul. Uh, of all right. Course. Here we go. To the pandemic. Not my- and here's my favorite fact of the pandemic. Not my favorite that I like it. It's just my favorite thing to make sure that people know. And that is that it was during a course of a pandemic where we said to nurses, you have to go into hospitals without sufficient protective gear to try and save lives. Where we said to bus drivers, you have to drive the streets of American cities, pick up people trying to have adequate care. When we said to immigrants working in meatpacking plants, you have to go into those plants and work every day around the clock, even though you don't have adequate care. When we said, you have to do that in a spirit of shared sacrifice. At that same time, the financial press started entertaining a question of when America would see its first trillionaire. Far from, you know, everybody else is sharing in sacrifice and billionaires are making so much money. Their expansion of wealth is so rapid that literally there is a discussion of whether Bezos or Elon Musk will be the first trillionaire. That's what happened during the pandemic. And if you pull the brake and pause and just think about that, I think you have to say to yourself, this is evidence of something that is so dark, so evil in, in the way that we arrange our economics, that it, it ought to make us pause as a country and ask whether we should have billionaires at all. Hmm. All right, uh, David. David Levy, let's hear from you next. What's on your mind? Hey, Bree, can you hear me? I can. Hey. Uh, so, um, yeah, basically um, what I'm thinking is uh, our problem, like pretty much with everything, um, has to do with a lack of will within our government because of the structure and because of you know, how cozy they are with industry. And it's not just our country, but it's primarily our country. So, so my question, I think it, it's less of how, of like, what do we do? Because we know what to do, but how do we do it? How do we get the groundswell to do it? How do we organize on the ground to get enough people out there? Um, and I think we're, Go ahead, sorry. Oh, sorry. And, and I think that really, uh, unfortunately has to be for uh, total reorganization of the U.S. government in a variety of ways. Oh, just that? (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, just that. You know, it's it's just a little thing. Now, what what I've been seeing is the sort of divide and conquer um, sort of issue where uh, people who are already in power um, are able to 
basically silo everyone into their own little issue. And because there are so many issues, and I don't, actually, I don't want to say little issue, but, you know, into their own issue. And because there are so many issues, that sort of spreads out the resistance to um, the fact that just like uh, nothing's happening on a political level, on a legislative level. Um, yeah, well, that's a good time. Maybe let me let me hit you with this Bernie clip because our guy, look, I know a lot of people are disaffected and, you know, I, I hear you, but our guy kind of says something germane to your point, your point there today. What do you think about what do you think about this? For some of my colleagues, what's going on now is almost a, a brings forth a sigh of relief. You don't have to talk about ending childhood poverty. You don't have to talk about transforming our energy system. You don't have to talk about taxing billionaires or dealing with childcare or education or creating universal health care. You don't have to talk about that anymore because we can go back to the good old Cold War. We have people to hate. We can spend more money on the military. And after all, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I worry about that very much. So for some of my colleagues, what's going on now is almost a, a brings forth a sigh of relief. You don't have to talk. About- yeah. So our guy is basically saying that, uh, you know, the, the, the Ukraine conflict is sucking up in a lot of the energy that people used to maybe use. You're talking about, you know, people's interest being diffused and their focus being diffused mm-hmm. because there's so much going on. Well, yep. not only is there so much going on, but this one big thing is sucking up an enormous amount of the energy that's basically offering a shield for Biden administration and its inability to enact the vast majority of its policy goals. Yes. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. Um, At at the same time, I'd also um, say, too, that within each of these individual issues, there tends to be a lot of superficial dividing uh, in order to keep people squabbling. This is one of the things, you know, about like the COVID response. There's been a lot of, you know, should we have mandates for X, Y, and Z, or should we not? And there's a lot of... um, just talking about things and we have to do things hundred percent of this way or hundred percent the other way. And it, it very much feels like we're having that conversation as a distraction from the fact that like the government isn't doing a lot of simple things that it needs to do in order to protect Americans, like make tests available so that mm. people can know when they have COVID, you know, the tracing uh, mechanisms so that we can, watch the spread, uh, you know, just having uh, PPE available to people. Yeah. It it just feels like that's all that this is all a distraction so that we don't have to talk about the fact that our government isn't doing all the very simple stuff Mm. that it should be doing. They should be paying people monthly stimulus checks continue ongoing. That is something that people it's the the calls for it have, have dissipated. Uh, People, it had progressive champions at one point. I don't know where they went. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, that should be something that the left is consolidating around. But I, I hate to say this, but there's a, a, a large number of people who are wrapped up in, in conspiratorial uh, thinking about, about, you know, how government is uh, trying to secret is trying to take away their rights and, and going to, we're going to become, you know, uh, I guess what what is it a medical a biomedical security state right that, yeah that they've, that they've yeah, completely lost like, yeah. they've yeah. lost the thread on, on what should be happening people need 
support. If we're going to have any kind of pandemic response that is effective, people are going to have to be paid because yes, not everybody should be forced to risk their health or the health of their family to survive. Um, the other thing I would say to you, David, is that mm-hmm. the situation that we have, that we are in today is the result of decades of work. Yeah. Like, like behind the scenes plotting and create, I mean, the, the way yeah. the Coke network operates is a model for what the left should be, should be doing. Um, in yeah. that they have been effective at infiltrating, getting their ideas into academia uh, law and economics, I believe, is taught in every, you know, most law schools now. I mean, that's that's and that's not just, you know, Coke. That's like there's this whole free market movement that they, they have infiltrated every aspect of American life. Economic analysis is applied everywhere. Progressives yeah. need their ideas to have the same kind of dissemination. And, right. and we need this. We need infrastructure. We need we need a state policy infrastructure. We need academic infrastructure. We need, yeah. you know, got to build. Is that I actually, in a way, think that it, that ends up being putting the cart before the horse, because we do need those things. But I don't think you'll get them in this environment because so much of the infrastructure that you're talking about depends on capital. I, I think that you know the the type of of things that average people can do is really about ground game and trying to, um, you know, affect people on a personal level, you know, door to door, you know, uh, just, just like, just in real life. Um, well, what do you mean by that, David? There's got to be real world organization in a real space. It can't just be online. Online is too. To what end? Out. What, do you, um, what do you, what do you, Matt? I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be derailing. I'm. I'm trying to just sure. be clarifying. I mean, I would just say for anything. I mean, that's that's just a general tactic, and how anyone will have to get any, you know, pressure put on the government to do anything, to change anything, to change how it works, to change who's in it, you know, whatever. Well, it seems uh, to me that Walker's making a point about what the kinds of demands are, which I think is really important, and that people aren't making. We are in. We're ending up in these smaller niche you know, intergroup discussions about mandates and how to tailor this, that, and the other and government overreach because we're not doing the thing that skips over the whole problem. So we're having, we're dickering about masks in school and whether people should go back. But part of it is that people are being motivated by things that are legitimate. People who don't want, you know, people who want schools to be open. Some of them are good faith actors who just can't afford childcare or who genuinely are white collar workers who have to work from, who are working from home, but can't do so with their kids in the house. And yeah. we could skip over that if we were having a robust conversation about childcare. We could have, we we could kind of cut some of the conservative logic off at the path and say, oh, okay, you want to go back to work? Then we have to have a actual testing mechanism and not just be sending people tests. I saw a very cynical take that said the reason that Biden finally sent people home tests was because those home test positive results aren't recorded on the public record, and therefore he can claim, you know, he does he can avoid the reality of spiking COVID rates. You know, so yeah. you know. John Nichols referenced in his book, I read a quote from his book where he's talking about Kamala Harris and Mike Pence in the debate where she says, well, Trump has failed because he hasn't done contact tracing and all these other kinds of things, which also have not manifested over a year into the Biden administration. So we could be having a conversation about that. That could potentially be a bipartisan conversation and exerting pressure in a, in a way that could be felt and maybe even acted yeah. upon. But we're not even framing the asks in those ways. We're just going back and forth about the minutiae. 
that's yeah. that's a really solid I mean solid point. I mean like we don't we don't have basic things that other countries have and that by the way universal healthcare systems in other countries where people have universal healthcare you have lower rates of vaccine skepticism. Mm. Like you know if you want to reduce people the the if you want to to vaccinate the population one thing you could do is you know have this larger conversation about healthcare and frankly we we need to be having that larger conversation anyway because our healthcare system even before the pandemic was an abysmal failure. Like this is but this is this is the moment. And and if you want to to your point, David, about how capital is, is really necessary for, for what Coke has done, you're absolutely right. It it is. Yeah. But wait a way to skip over that is that all that money that they have goes into mobilizing people at the local level to show up at their yeah. at their local board meetings, at their mm-hmm. school board meetings and yell yeah. at legislators and yell at local politicians. You know what? You can do that for free. You can go yeah. out tomorrow, you can go to your school board meeting and tell them, hey, I demand more safety for my kid. You could get 10 people. If you can get 10 people to show up and do that and show up at every single meeting, they're going to start responding to you because people have a hard time saying no to somebody yelling at them. Yes. And that was that was actually the point I was trying to get across was mm-hmm. that we're going to have to come at it from the opposite direction is whereas they're able to pull in, push in all this capital to astroturf this and they're able to use this in order to create uh, the already existing network throughout places like academia and business. The left is going to have to come at this from the other side, where it's going to have to be door-to-door human communication, because you're going to get shut out of a lot of technological solutions, because you don't control them. Mm. And, the, and what you're trying to organize for is fundamentally against most business interests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... I, it just, uh, um, it, it seems to me there has got to be a real, real focus whenever there's a major problem, and there are major problems constantly in this country, you know, it's just getting worse, um, that, that there has got to be an actual on-the-ground response, something where people talk about, like, actually stopping up either a business that's exploiting people or, you know, just, like, harassing some member of government who is being, you know, absolutely abhorrent and, you know, trying to either push terrible legislation or, you know, prevent legislation from passing. It's just there, it has got to be a real response that goes beyond electronic shouting. You know what? Also, just to add to that, reframe the freaking debate about freedom. Stop defining yeah. freedom as just choice and leaving it there. Freedom is not just choice. It's choice, but it's also material support to make those yep. choices meaningful. It is having, you know, I mean, so often in this debate, particularly about COVID and the way to respond to it, we hear about, you know, my freedom and I don't want to be, yeah. I don't want to be to stay home. I want to go out. I want to do all of these things and people can take risks. I'm going to make my choices. You know what? you know, it's great for people who have the ability to do that, but not everybody does. So if you, you know, if we're talking about freedom, there is no freedom to the worker who has to go in and serve you and risk themselves and their family so that they can survive so that you can get your fucking coffee in the morning, Karen. Like, you know, like, redefine this debate, build, uh, go out and do the thing. You know, people have to get, they have to get active. They have to get angry. And and yeah. we have mollified people 
in this uh, in this pandemic with this sort of con- by framing framing public health and collectivism as uh, reframing as in- individual choice and that's the full extent of freedom. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have much else to say, so I think I'll let the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what's coming? <laughs> Does anyone know where this is going? Where? No, I'm I'm baffled. Here it I'm comes. Not it. I want to break free. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want Freddie Mercury, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you, David, for calling in. Let no me problem. let me hop Thank around you. this queue a little bit. Um, Uche, you are the next caller. What's on your mind? Got to unmute. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, cool. Uh, this is hilarious. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. You actually could be a little louder, actually, Uche. You want to get a little closer to your mic? Is this better? Mm, not really. Could could you try shouting a little bit? <laughs> All right, I'm on Bluetooth. I'm gonna take myself off Bluetooth. Yeah, that might help. I just learned that Bluetooth is named for 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 an actual person, like a Viking. Named Bluetooth? Yeah, apparently that's like Bluebeard. I, I, I could look. I could be wrong. It's just what two of my best friends told me. Just Google it. Apparently, Bluetooth is named for an actual explorer. Huh. Fun fact. Thank you for that. <laughs> Uche, do you have other fun facts for us or just a question or observation about this episode today? <laughs> uh, thoughts? Um, no, honestly, I, I, this is kind of just like a first time experience. I, I have uh, um, a lot of thoughts, but I don't want to be long winded. Um, I got through part of your episode on YouTube. Um, and I guess if I were to synthesize any thoughts or remarks, um, I'm just curious about like, where you think like the rubber is going to meet the road as far as accountability is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, your your guest had a lot of poignant points and the amount of evidence uh, as far as like the hypocrisy of both administrations and both political parties and their inability to meet the um, populist need of their constituents is is becoming more and more or compounding essentially. So you know, come these midterms, you know, and, and, I, and I like the other people who've talked about, you know, uh, you know, getting people to be more involved in their localities and, and being more personable as far as getting more people to get out there. But a point that you've talked about plenty of times is kind of like the squandering of natural movements, particularly when it comes to George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we can do our individual locale uh, activism, but I also think it's important to essentially shame the devil when it comes to these elected officials, you know, and in any and every particular way. And I think you do a good job of doing that when they are brave enough to speak to you. Um, And particularly I was listening to um, or watching Jon Stewart talk to Cory Booker. Mm -hmm. um, uh, And I I couldn't get through all that because there was just too many platitudes. But I say all that to say that, like, in the year of 2022 and these midterms, and we have essentially two more years of the Biden administration, um, I don't see the masses having that energy to do what they did during Floyd uh, again, but I do see an opportunity to kind of uh, uh, 
take inventory whenever whenever these politicians because they're going to be doing their media circuits soon you know they're going to try to build a narrative to get people out to you know to vote for these democrats again and mm-hmm. sure the republicans are trash and all that but and i know it's not strictly upon you but in my mind i can't help but think that um these politicians particularly democrats in power they are going to need to be shamed in one form or another in a better way than they have been so far and I'm just curious as to who or how that uh, uh, that shaming can be conducted. Um, what do you mean by shaming? You mean like, do you mean shaming or do you mean like ha- held accountable, have some kind of accountability commission, well, CORA commission type of situation and an impeachment over, you know, uh, one chapter, you know, I think a chapter is devoted in the book to the idea of impeachment and the question kind of of whether or not, I mean, I'm, I raised this in the interview whether or not it would have been more effective to try to impeach Trump over his COVID response as opposed to the one six thing or, or both if, if, if that's what floats your boat. Um, yeah, no, I was, I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to say both. I was going to say both as far as um, shame is, is, is a tool to point out the hypocrisy of people's rhetoric. So I would use shame as a tool to point out the hypocrisy of Democrats rhetoric towards their constituents about give, essentially giving a fuck when they really don't. Or their lack of uh, holding the mansions and the people hiding behind mansions accountable for them not following through to what their constituents want. The data is there, the polls are there as far as what the Democratic constituents want and the uh, and and how that juxtaposed to what Biden and the and the uh, conservative Dems aren't doing um, should be shamed. As far as accountability, um, that goes into uh, policies that have already been stated but have not been followed through upon. You know, the $2,000 checks, um, expanding health care, right. things of that but, sort. But, so, you know the answer to this question. <clears throat> you know the answer to this question because who's going to do it? Nobody. That, But uh, I, 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 I get that. The point I'm trying to get to is that even if no one's going to do that, I don't know – the people that these people are going in front of who aren't going to shame them and hold them accountable, I still I still think there's an opportunity there to point out just the lack of things to be necessarily gleeful about. Uh, there, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of receipts that, you know, the, uh, uh, when Obama was do- going for his second term, he had uh, the uh, ACA to lean on and, and to, to tell about. Um, I don't know what Dems have to lean on. And, and well, to well, your the point, problem yeah. is, Uche, for the context of this episode, is that they're leaning in part on having resolved COVID. I mean, part of what's motivating the um, oh, abandonment of contact tracing and some of the other um infrastructure that helps to track how bad things are and the masking guidelines being what they are and making it seem like we're returning to normal is so that joe biden can crow that by that COVID's over you know having the unmasked state of the union that's all a certain kind of i would argue pageantry so that he can run on oh look how much things have changed from year to year meanwhile we haven't done anything i mean look and the thing is that this is what i mean but people have been mollified like people have been convinced like uh, that Omicron, you know, oh, it's mild and oh, now we have natural immunity and that'll be that'll be long lasting and that'll that'll work out just fine. And I mean, the science on all of this stuff is extraordinarily dubious. Um, people should still be outraged. They should still be frustrated. They should still be uh, trying to not get this virus and and, you know, taking precautions to 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 protect their kids from it and demanding that lawmakers do more. Really, if you, I go back to, you know, get active, go, go to your local school board, go yell, 
you know, if you really, if you want to yell at somebody, yell at local officials because that, and, 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 and county officials and state officials make, make their lives difficult. That's, that's what the, the right does it to, to great effect. Um, and granted they have organization, they have central organization. It's, it's largely astroturfed. So they have that advantage, but I mean, they, they should not be dominating this conversation. This is 2009 all over again. You have an opportunity. You have a massive disruption to society. You have widespread uh, anxiety and frustration with the status quo. Don't let people con- like do not let this group of elites convince pe- the the country that a thousand, two thousand deaths a day is an acceptable new normal. So, Walker, what does that look like? Because I think that what what Uche is getting at is it's an election year. So, what's the point of leverage here? Are, are we saying is this an argument that left should be leftists should be saying progressives should be saying? I'm not going to support Democrats in midterms unless there is what from the Biden administration, because from the administration's perspective, I'm not saying this is accurate, but obviously the calculation that the administration is making is that emphasizing COVID in the least is a, is a losing issue for Democrats specifically because of how they were spooked by Yonkin. And this is something that came up in the podcast as well. And that they said that school issue plus the COVID issue was a non, is it is a non, starter for us and we're going to downplay that to make that a a something that they actually are running on and to kind of appeal to or capitulate to pressure from the left to talk more about a covid response and their imagination is like they'd rather lose the left probably to something that they have it already than to indulge in a line of argumentation that they think is going to cause them to lose the quote-unquote center that, that that's the argument so so what do you what do you say to that I, I think it's- Go ahead. No, you go. Well, I, I, I was just curious as to like who who do you think is going to necessarily of the existing voting popu- uh, population in America, which is shrinking in my in my understanding, who who's going to buy the new narrative of of the Dems with with all that you've described as far as how they're trying to weave their narrative coming into this midterm of like working class Americans who are still um, engaged in electoral politics. How many of that working class America, just normal people, are going to buy into that narrative and that narrative juxtaposed to their actual lived experience? I think they're looking to hold the lib base. They're hold, look, look, the, look they're, they're, I think there is actually a world where to, you don't feed at something negative and you pivot to something positive, and that's actually a good strategy. But if you don't have anything positive to pivot to, then you're just delusionally avoiding the point. Well, they're just telling people things are better in your life. Trust us. And that's, I don't think that's going to work. I I just, I I don't think you can risk losing. And this is a point that you've made so many times and, 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 and did so on the campaign trail very effectively. Um, You know, Brie, I I think that you, you took, first of all, you took a lot of heat for making this point and you were 100% right. (laughs) And that, that you have to, you cannot lose your most enthusiastic supporters yeah. or the people who are your natural supporters in a, in a, in a failed attempt to uh, appeal to people who are a hundred percent opposed to you. You're not going to win. Moderate. Correct. There are no moderate Republicans to win over. Right. It's but the, happen. that is a hundred percent true. And also they don't get that and they don't, they're not hearing that. No, they're they, not they going to be convinced that. in the next few months. So, either. I, so I don't think that, the, that look, I don't, I'm not going to, tell people who to vote for. I haven't and I won't, but 
I, I will say that I, I don't think that it necessarily, um, I mean, obviously it, it matters in, in, in districts that are competitive and whatnot, and we can, that's a whole separate conversation, but it doesn't matter in sense, in the sense of, I don't think it's going to change democratic, uh, elected behavior. I think what will change the way that democratic party officials behave is if there is constant uproar and disc and disquiet at official meetings um if more and more insurgents get a, get elected and primary out uh incumbents i think that will that'll go a, a ways to to changing how they behave i mean right now we have what maybe five to seven members in the house who are ostensibly uh but, 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 but walker so incumbents being loud and, and demanding what no, I'm sorry, uh, challenger. Sorry, being loud and demanding. I, I'm not talking about challenges. I'm saying people. Like if, like at your, at, like local meetings, if there are angry parents groups going and like shouting down school board members. No, no, no. I hear you, but demanding what? Stuff. Well, demanding like don't no, don't remove our masks from schools. No, don't. We demand remote learning options. Like there are parents groups out there who are who are doing these things. They deserve your support. <laughs> you know, like that. Like being like that kind of activity i think if you if you show that there is a real appetite for this stuff and in, in the same way that the right because the right is very aggressive about this they they go they shout down people they even i mean i'm not suggesting people do this i'm just pointing out that it does happen uh school board members have been facing threats to their safety from people on the right like that's how mobile not i i, I don't want to use them radicalized that's the word i'm looking for that mm-hmm. is how radicalized the right is on this. So, so you are up against a very vocal minority that are taking increasingly extreme measures and catering to the middle only empowers this this horrific element uh, of the American, you know, body politic. Like that, you have to. Uh, I mean, it's 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 hard because there the, all all of everything is stacked against you. Big business is against you. The money is against you. Politicians who prefer to just be caretakers and not change things or ruffle feathers are against you. I, I, there is no short-term solution to this. Well, let's hear. I, let's hear. Oche, I, I appreciate you, but I want to get through some more callers. Let's hear from Mateo and and get some more more questions here on the table or thoughts on the table. Mateo, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, you let me cut the line. That's cool. I have yeah, some great. Ho- mater- I've been hopping around all day today. <laughs> I have some great material for you. Okay. By the way. I want to say something to you, uh, Brianna. It sounds incredibly creepy coming from like the middle-aged man I am, but you're a really attractive woman. Oh, boy. Anyway. Well, we're both, we're both middle-aged people at this point, Mateo. So what's on your mind this evening? Please, Thank please you. Don't that. Okay. <laughs> Number one, Guys, I'm, hear, I'm 37 this year. Like mm-hmm. It's good to hear a genuine kind of left perspective and not a fake left perspective. That's cool. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. So here's, here's my observations. Um, One, the CDC was intentionally corrupted. We had like Michael Caputo in there in the wacko Great Barrington Declaration. So when we look at the institutional mistrust of the CDC, that was kind of by design of the Trump administration, which is hostile to governance as like their philosophy, right? They're kind of the ultimate weaponized libertarians who want to destroy legitimate government. And they did that by destroying trust in the CDC. Uh, Second point, I really do think... um, you guys were a little bit talking about yesterday's war in that uh, Omicron – I mean in that, in that COVID really is six different things in history. Mm-hmm. I studied it really obsessively in terms of who Delta killed 
last year and why and the really, really horrible Delta Omicron mix that like the Great Lakes got and Russia got. And that was specifically bad because those are specific things. And uh, along those lines, the whole process of it becoming less lethal and more communicable is exactly what the Spanish flu did. Um, and so, you know, we saw this exact same thing a century ago, pretty much like with the same timing, too, that the Spanish flu lasted about two years in spare change. Um, so I think the two questions that both sides don't want to face, like if I can broadly characterize uh, the two halves of things in terms of like one half being kind of anti-vax and looking for kind of a, a told you so message in terms of things that have failed about uh, the vaxes and the policies and the other side being kind of the the more like Portland type um, there's more pro mask, and I think I think the anti-vax side um, um, is going to have to face the reality of long COVID and like the fact that they were casual about masking versus Omicron and not taking things seriously is going to have a real price for their health. Possibly, we don't know though. Three four years long COVID may be a real nightmare scenario, even for mild infections. And I think the other horror story that like uh, my side, which is more the kind of pro mask, pro vax side, and that's we still. There's still some answer, unanswered questions about mRNA and things like fertility. And we just don't know if there are any bad surprises kind of waiting down the pike there. Well, what's the um, so science? That, that's thing? my material. What's, what's, the deal with, what's the deal with that? Well, I don't, I, I'm not a scientist. I don't know if mRNA is – I mean, mRNA is about a 10-year-old technology. I've, I've had uh, – I got Pfizer – or not Pfizer. I got the, uh, the Dolly Parton stuff. Uh, I got Moderna three times myself. Uh, but we we still don't know entirely if there's going to be any genetic uh, aspects. And that's, you know, I think that's the only of all the noise and garbage that like the Fox News people pumped into the, you know, out there killing hundreds of thousands of Americans for all that. I think the one intellectually valid thing they do have to say is we still don't know everything that mRNA uh, does. And that's actually, that doesn't- But mRNA, back well, to that's... my understanding, is not, it's not new technology. It's not novel technology. And the it's fact the past that- doesn't no, In fact, the treatments for COVID that the, the people tout are, are way more cutting edge. Uh, every single medical professional that I've talked to through the course of my reporting, every epidemiologist, every single one of them has, has said that, you know, the vaccines are safe. It's not that this that these these concerns about you know oh, what about the long term consequences? The long term consequences of COVID are far worse, far more worthy of consideration. Right, right, and that's and that's naturally my politics. I naturally agree with you entirely there, um, but it's going to be it's going to be something that is a good problem to have in that mRNA might uh, might change the world in a great way in terms of uh, Alzheimer's, uh, in terms of herpes. In terms of AIDS, even it could it could do wonderful things, but we still don't know everything about it, right? With with great power comes great downside, potentially. You know, I, I'm not a biologist, though. Thank you, Mateo. Yeah, thank you. It's a great show. I really enjoyed it. You too, you too. Okay, let's get on. Let's get Jonathan in here. I've been. I feel bad. I've been skipping over some of the people who who talk frequently. So let me change it up. It's not your fault that you're a you're. I want to reward commitment to the show. <laughs> well, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind, Jonathan. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, you know, this was really a banger of an episode. Like this, like I love John anyway. Like he's such he's a writes some great books, but I, I oh yes, also intellectually. <laughs> yeah, I cannot wait to read this one. It's um, you know, you had a caller a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was just a couple of episodes ago, who said. Um, 
being on the left means recognizing uh, how so many things are connected to so many other things. Mm. And this kind of rang a lot of bells for me, uh, you know, both as you know, an individual, me, myself, and I, and as a healthcare provider who's been watching this from the front lines. Mm. And uh, yeah, tell, I mean, it's, tell us about that. It's a, I mean, it's abundantly clear that the engine is running and nobody's behind the wheel on so many levels of government here. And, you know, I think we've been going through live, through life, watching the movies, assuming there's somebody behind the scenes that's handling this stuff. And who knows how long the engine's been running and nobody's been sitting there. And, you know, everybody was just kind of making it up as they went along. Like it was, I've never seen anything like it. I never expected anything like it. It really hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. My educational like and professional experience has all been that process of learning more and more every day, moment and year of my life, how nobody's at the wheel and nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a rot, <laughs> it's a rot and it's, it's spread and it's just like, who knows how long it's been like this, but like it, it, it's like, it's kind of like the Trump presidency in a sense. It's not so much that it created so many brand new problems uh, as much as it revealed that the emperor has no clothes and yep. just how much of that crowd is naked. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything, Jonathan, that you specifically would like to see that would help you in your professional healthcare provider context? Uh, you know what? Like, uh, firstly, uh, the ability to, uh, to trust that our institutions are telling us the truth. Okay, that Fauci thing early on in the pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, where he, he basically openly admitted to lying about masking so that he could, <laughs> you know, encourage people to behave a certain way, you know, mm -hmm. like not, you know, steal all the stuff from healthcare providers. And then the thing about, you know, admitting that he exaggerated the numbers for herd immunity uh, so that he could encourage more people to get the vaccine. I'm like, that's not your job, dude. Your job is to give people the straight facts. Uh, make sure as many people are making as informed decisions as possible. That's your job. It's not your job to West Wing it and uh, <laughs> and basically manipulate other people's behavior by by misleading them. Now they know that you lied and they don't trust a word you say. They just see you as a patronizing butthole. And the the rest of the response, just all over the country, it was it was completely piecemeal. It was you know as one of my colleagues like to say, uh, you know, monkeys effing footballs. Like mm -hmm. everybody was just making it up as they went along. Like you could see all these nursing care facilities that were run by business people that were treating PPE like it was some sort of magical talisman that was going to ward off the evil spirits that caused the Rona. Mm -hmm. Like there was no guidance. It was going, it was varying by, you know, state by state. You would see, uh, you know, California had like a different standard for, you know, movie set people than they did for restaurant owners. And definitely a different, a completely different standard for governors. That's for sure. Like there was no centralized guidance. Everybody was just off doing their own thing. And, you know, it was, it was just utter bedlam and people died because of it. Okay. Like there was just no consistent guidance. We just made it up. Yeah. You yeah. know, I lost friends. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jonathan. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's... Yeah, I went to I went to my friend Kenny's funeral in October. Like that was he had long COVID and he got reinfected with Delta. Oh, Jesus! You know, it's I I really this is this is part of my perpetual outrage is that we have treated 
the medical community, like, you know, oh, you deal with it. They sort of like, um, it, it, I guess, I guess the, it would be similar to, to throwing if you, if you had a, if you had like a housekeeper, like throwing something on the floor in front of them, like you deal with that. Like, I don't have yeah. to deal with it. And it, we've, we've completely taken advantage of, of the people that we are, that we expect to save us to, to do, um, to perform miracles for us because we can't be bothered to, to do what, what we should be doing. And I, I think it's, it's abysmal. I have friends who are doctors and the, the debt of Gre- of Gre- owes its medical professionals will not soon be repaid. Just one. I mean, I think the combination of that and some of the stuff you were mentioning earlier, you know, the, uh, the, the vaccine IP stuff, okay? You know, this kept coming back to us from, you know, other countries around the world uh, because, you know, and there were all these other countries with uh, pharmaceutical plants, India, that were ready to mass produce these things in quantity if we had just removed those blocks. And, you know, we could have, you know, saved millions of billions even, you know, well, no, not billions, but, you know, definitely a lot of people, like a lot of zeros uh, all over the world and prevented a lot of these variants from evolving and coming back here if we could have just dealt with some of that greed. Uh, But, you know, then you have like the economic, uh, you know, fallout for ordinary people. And, you know, the incredible growth in wealth, like, the, you know, all that stuff that John was getting into there, the connection between those things, um, you know, just really resonated with stuff that we've been talking about for years. But I don't think any of us really expected it to come together in this way and just really clobber us on the head. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate thank your you. insights as always. And thank you for all that you do um, as a healthcare provider. And, and stay safe. Thanks for having me on. And yeah. will do. Emma. Of course. Let's um let's hear from Andrew. Continue to skip around in the queue. Stay alert, guys. It could be you next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind, Andrew. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. Hey, guys. Yeah, I just had a few tech problems, so that's why you couldn't hear me right there because I had to be busy covering a few things. But I got to give you a full round of applause all the way now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're doing your whole thing with that and everything, and I just had to give you love with that all the way. Although, Bree, you yes. being on Megan Kelly's show, come on, girl, what? <laughs> Did you listen to it, Andrew? Bree, Bree, you being on Megan Kelly's show with how horrible a person she is and how she's not wanting to have any real constructive conversation with a smart person like you, 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 you know that this person is going to do her horrible stuff, but I know you said a lot of quality things because I know how quality you bring it with that as well as Walker, you know, with this, but, um, you know, just, Oh, Walker, you want to say something? Oh, what? No. Oh yeah. Like basically. Oh. <laughs> Hi, <you> know, Andrew. <laughs> how you doing? Good sir. Long time. No see my man, but it's been a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute dealing with Twitter nonsense and having to have Twitter Give me back my main account and all the nonsense of not having it for 18 months. But, yeah, we know centrists and conservatives really are the ones firmly at least at fault because we still have a crazy deranged party that is still a large majority party. But we do have just a lot of Americans that just want to go into a selfish frame. Well, 
we wish we could do like how we saw in Australia with Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the states down there making the decision to try to contain COVID as much as possible and having the really stay-at-home orders or lockdowns that they had. And you saw that whole type of response with some people down there. Just imagine if we did that sensible thing even before the vaccine or the early stages of the vaccine, we would probably have anarchy here further. <laughs> you know, with how a lot of people have responded, where we saw in Canada and Ottawa, with how mostly a large majority of white people towards centrists and conservatives who just didn't want to be the mandate, and also just some people who aren't conservatives still hated it all the way, but they still had that type of reaction that got enough traction with it. We will be having that, particularly if Biden decided early in the stages last year to do still those sensible things of real con- containing of disease, and yet we would still have them be a vocal thing and obviously... But I'm sorry, let me just, I want to make sure I understand, Andrew. You're saying that you think that if we, I don't know, actually gave people $2,000 checks or pay people to stay home or send groceries to people's doors or had a public option or God forbid, medic... So, but I thought you were saying that you thought that people would rebel even if we did some of those things well, that I exist in even, countries that I are... think even with that, Brie, even a little bit, the reason why I say that for, and we should, we should obviously should have done that. We should have did what Canada should have done. We should have kept on giving payments so people can stay home and not get sick. But then we obviously... So what's, just help me understand your argument then, Andrew. Well, what I'm saying, though, is that the climate, we still would have had a lot of people, particularly a lot of people who vote against their interests, who still would have hated that, who would have said, oh, you're giving certain people money to stay home who don't deserve to stay home. And we really are having that element where, unfortunately, the powers of centrist media and conservative media continue to filter those narratives out like that. We still should have done that. But we still have those factors that lead to wars, that level of disinformation and seeing the level of people vote against their own interests economically with that. And that's a powerful thing with it. Now, of course, we didn't have that happen. And you knew that the minute the vaccine got pushed out, that it was going to be that way where the vaccine was, oh, we have the vaccine now. Let's get back to normal. And that was going to be the whole narrative that was going to come for it because we know centrists don't want to have actual policies for the polis area. We always know that or whatnot. But well, we, I, I want to be know, careful here, Andrew, because I, I actually don't think I think that sometimes we can get there's a such thing as being overly cynical. I think that you're right that the media narrative, the corporate media is going to say what they're going to say. But that is not dispositive because many, many times the people don't agree with the corporate media narrative. So, you know, yeah. we withdrew from Afghanistan. The the, the the corporate media was mad across the aisle and the people in Biden's approval rating went up. So but, I just want to be very careful. Like, yes, of course, the mainstream is going to say what they're going to say, but that doesn't say anything well, about whether or not we should enact a policy. Well, and I don't call them the mainstream. I call us in progressive today the real mainstream because – we reflect the actual things and why I just call them the centrist media, you know, that we are. But that that hasn't stopped people still voting Republican and still having conservatives at least own half the government with that. Well, because we didn't so, do anything. We didn't actually do any of those things. Which which is definitely the case. But also, those people are insane. Those people don't still need to be voted on. They're not doing anything other than catering to rich people. And yet still, it's that whole alternative towards that. Heck, we still have people trying to deny, obviously, as we know with Shawnee Brown and Nita Turner, where people can clearly see that Shawnee Brown 
is a corporate sellout, but still that whole narrative right there in terms of trying to break through that filter or whatnot is still a massive problem with that. And that's something that's just a reality of the situation. So it's a thing that we have to still factor in in regards to that level of just still trying to have a lot of average Americans be able to see the full details of this and also see that we have an insane major party that is still there in order so then we can best challenge the centrist and show what the real alternative is than just having an insane crazy party, whether it's centrist versus progressive slash rationalist and being able to have that. But clearly at the very least, when we still have predominantly a lot of red states and leading towards the policies of not wanting to even have an acknowledgement of science, an acknowledgement of just protecting people in a once in a generation pandemic, that is still a major factor with that and why that was significant in regards to the spread in 2020, in regards to still having this level of mass misinformation be so pervasive and be in that way where you have to feel uncomfortable being in an elevator in your building with just sensibly wearing a mask when that is the sensible thing to do. So, well, that's not, but that's, that's exactly my point though, Andrew, that's not crazy anti, that's not quote unquote people who don't respect science who are saying that it's the people that we're supposed to believe are the arbiters of what is science that are telling us to no longer wear masks in the elevator, which is why I'm resisting a little bit of what I feel like is a flat characterization of what's going on. I am less, I'm less open. I'm less sympathetic to the argument that it's like, these are just these crazy people. I mean, obviously there's some element of that in every population, almost to the extent that it's not worth discussing. Crazy people are crazy people. It is what it is. But the but this idea that oh people just don't understand and why don't they get it? Well, it's because to the all the, this entire conversation, the misinformation has been happening from the authorities from the get go. Was it you, Walker, who said the CDC is a political under, organization and should be understood as such? It is the mainstream CDC, Biden administration, and Fauci who are telling us not to mask in elevators right now. So I I think it's it's a mistake to characterize the pushback or the this confusion. Or the well, Discord, um, but I got I got to move on, okay, um, Andrew. I really appreciate your. They say it by getting vaccinated. To be fair to them, they say that by being vaccinated. So I think that's an important distinction. Yes, we still should have the. They still should be. We. I mean, it'd be ideal if they did like Australia. If they did, in terms of encouraging that, but we got to be fair and still say they push vaccination with that and not doing the Kyrie Irving thing. But I appreciate y'all. Let's give y'all a round of applause for it. Like, right. <laughs> Thank let's you, Andrew. Let's hear, let's hear from Max Walker. I want to give you a chance to respond before Max jumps in. Oh. Um, if, and, if you don't have anything to say, don't worry about it. No, I just I was I would just say that, you know, it's not. Yeah, the, the CDC um, it, it responding to is sort of responding to politics. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that the CDC is driving the I mean, I guess their decisions have have the effect of driving uh, uh, driving politics, but I, I I see in in my estimation estimation the CDC is a is is reactive here. What do you make of um, what was the news story from a week or so ago where the the page I think it was at the CDC that had tallied the COVID numbers got edited um, to edit down the the volumes and the conservatives were making a big. Do you, you remember that? I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, fake news and I can't find the story right now on a quick Google. Mm, I mean, I know they, they, they changed their standard for, for masking, which. No, it was about, um, there was, there was a, 
basically a a record of the number of cases that was edited down in a significant way that affected, you know, how we perceived the curve and then people made a big deal of it. But since none of us know what we're talking about, let's not, let's not fake news it. Let's hear from Max while I look for the story. What's on your mind, Max? Max, do you want to mute yourself? Max. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to move on. I'm going to, Get uh, Rika in the chat. Rika, what's on your I mind? Hey, Brie, can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Um, just wanted to say loved the episode. Oh, I'm glad. Um, yeah, no, it was it was great. And one of the things that you know, the obviously the key theme is like accountability. Who's going to be accountable? And I I feel like um, it got me thinking a lot about uh, kind of act up, right? Mm. Like the organization. We were going to look at like what did they do and who did they target i mean they obviously targeted a whole bunch of people but they were like a militant direct action non-stop type of organization full of everyone from people who were living with aids and hiv to people who were um families or uh relatives of people who were affected by it to scientists right so they had like a bunch of people coming together and I like I feel like in this moment, what I would love to see it maybe there are, and I just don't know about it, but I would love to see some type of organization that has that kind of spirit around mm. this kind of coming together to hold um somebody accountable i I don't think we can really get at it without having some type of organization like that. Yeah, it's funny. There was there was a whole section in the book about ACT UP that we didn't get into that much in the, in the episode. And it occurs to me that, you know, I'm not as familiar with the history of, of ACT UP. And I think it would be really useful perhaps even to do a whole episode of, of it, on it in this context. Because it does feel like there isn't as like a concrete kind of, um, you know, victims advocacy organization, you know, advocacy organization for people who have been affected. I don't think of a constituency of long COVID folks or people who have suffered or family members of folks who have passed away from COVID, things like that don't seem to, maybe I'm wrong, but don't seem to have emerged in the same way that we have certain other kinds of groups. And it, there, there is a group called touched by COVID, which is focused on, on long COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not super familiar with the group. I, I have uh, had like a brief conversation with the, uh, with the people who run it, but it is, it's a group, it's an advocacy group for people who have, who are, who are suffering with, with long COVID and, and dealing with it. Because the, I mean, the issue is, you know, I, I would love to know more about, you know, the funding behind ACT UP and what legislators were potentially on their side and how they were, you know, you know the, the nuts and bolts of how things got done. One of the things I really liked about our interview with um, my interview with Ralph Nader, I guess it was last year, maybe even 2020, I can't remember, was that he was so specific about how they just ground the wheels and got attention. And yeah. got things done. He told an anecdote about like dressing up as a waiter to infiltrate a, an event. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. We need that. But like, I don't, you know, I think a lot of people are like, let's mobilize and let's rally, you know, let's hold more rallies. And it's like, no, 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 no. We, we are over the symbolic, like it has, if your action is not literally disrupting and make like like i think what walker had said making people's lives a miserable hell 
mm. um, skate, like you're not really affecting power. Like those truck, and going back to kind of what I think I was on the episode, or maybe, or, I maybe mean, I was listening to the episode and hoping that I could get on, but the truckers episode and that, like, and you know that what they did, they really disrupted shit, and it was they hit people's, you know pocketbooks and the people that matter and I think like if we don't have that then there will be no accountability and I I, there's I have to admit though there's a part of me that kind of feels like we may have missed the boat I'm I don't know like I'm not I'm not like completely hopeless on that yet but I mean there there is something to be said about like how demobilized people were as a result of like just the complete fear of the nature of the virus in terms of how it impacted people and affects people and which is which is reasonable but but there is reasonable reasonable risk to take in organizing too and i think that there wasn't you know based off of like how people perhaps were not organizing at that time i don't think people were able to get that kind of information to figure it out because i mean look at look at you know the protests and actions that were happening in George Floyd or during the wake of George Floyd in Minneapolis, people were out in droves and people were organizing like crazy. Right. So like, mm-hmm. I think, I think we're, we're doing a lot of talk about how um, it's like this thing where we're promoting fear by trying to be honest about the um, maybe promoting fear is the wrong words, but we are. Well, no, no, that's the word. Fear. Yeah, that's the word that Chris Hedges used. You know, he said yeah. that people need to be afraid of you. Yes, yes, but like we And we also talking- don't don't take it as as we've missed the boat. Just keep in mind that you know, New Deal liberalism was the was the dominant like ideology in in the US for 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 decades for an entire generation but the i think walker the the issue is that we got that new deal liberalism as a compromise because there were real life communists that were rattling the cages exactly hang on the the, the point that i'm making is not that it's not that new deal liberalism existed it's it's actually the opposite it's that the conservative movement was able to build from the ground up from from zero i mean their ideology had been exposed during the great depression they weren't taken seriously and they and they they built up and they were able to change politics within within a generation no, every, no i get you but I, is I, is an opportunity I, here i don't think that rika's saying that it's everything's impossible forever but i do agree that there right. was a moment like that's why yeah. force the vote i'm sorry to be that person except i'm not sorry <laughs> at all and i will say force the vote repeatedly until the day i fucking die because every day should. of my life validates how should. fucking right i was and everyone else loses their mind when i bring it up because they know that they're embarrassed and they look pathetic and wrong as hell for not having understood what the moment was so the the reason why force the vote was at such a tension point is because at no other point we're at the height of the pandemic before we even had a vaccine where people are dying left and right where people are still shocked by a number like 500,000 deaths instead of rolling their eyes at a million deaths right where we we had the public consensus around the need and desire for medicare for all and we had we were before we were anticipating some must pass bills through which you could get a hell of a lot. And I'm not saying it was going to be Medicare for all, but it sure as fuck should have been a conversation about a public option. And it sure yeah. as hell should have been a conversation about, I saw an article recently about maybe it was even from you Walker about all of the, the costs that people are now incurring from COVID related ailments, which, you know, Kamala Harris wants to get up on stage or tweet 
about how people, not only should the vaccines be free, but people's treatment should be free. That's well and good. But how are you, without a, 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 an acknowledgement of long COVID and how it's devastating people, how can you possibly have an accounting of what bills should be paid? What can be attributed to long COVID versus not? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what I was, what I was trying to say was that I think there's a, there's a way in which we've immobilized ourselves with the discourse of fear around the severity of this virus. Mm-hmm. That is, re- that is kind of, bo- that is based on the reality of what it is like, obviously for people to be infected, but there is also evidence that su- suggests about how, like that there are ways to navigate and assess risk differently, right. Uh, depending on who you are and whether or not you're fully vaccinated and all that jazz. And I think we, we haven't done, and by we, I am referring to that, you know, um, unknown proverbial left, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that is, I don't think we've really done a, a good job of like, I think we've, a, we've let the mainstream discourse, which is liberal, like, kind of drive the wheel about our position and our stake and like being completely pro X policy, right, which is pretty much whatever you know, like masking CDC kind of stuff. And it's, and like, some of that is really important, but then, then then there's the reality of like, well, what are people, what risks are people willing to take to assert and demand justice and accountability? Like, again, again, I go back to the George Floyd situation where people were literally, you know, burning down a police station, you know, to- And I had public approval. And had public approval. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I, more of a reflection, uh, just like thinking about that, I think looking toward ACT UP is uh, probably a really good start and um, trying to encourage that type of militancy again and bringing in like a bunch of people, I think would be uh, my dream for an organization to hold people accountable. Well, thank you for that perspective. Rika. I think that's a really good idea an episode and for our orientation. We're going to have to wrap up at an hour and a half tonight and not do one of our marathons um, because I have company. But Walker, I want to thank you in particular for spending this time with us here tonight. Your insights have been invaluable. Can you tell people where to find you and your work at the Daily Poster and otherwise? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, you can find me at now the Daily Poster has become the lever. Uh, So I have to check the website because uh, it's levernews.com. It's still very new. It's very new for all of us, but it's very exciting. Uh, we've expanded our news operation, brought on some some new talent, and uh, yeah, it's it's good. Also, um, you can you can find me on uh, the Opt Out app, uh, which Bree, you and I should have a conversation um, at some point. But yeah, Opt Out is an independent uh, media. It's it's just it's a it's an Apple News for independent media. You can stream, you can watch YouTube videos, you can you can read articles. So that's that's it without all the noise. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure when we get to speak. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, did I lose you? No, no, no. It's my fault. I pressed a button. I was just saying that I hadn't heard about the name change, but that's exciting news. There's always good things happening over there with you guys and David Sirota. I don't know what we do without you. As always, everybody, thank you for listening to The Debrief. Um, this has been great. I don't, won't keep skipping over the mainstays. I see you, Kusha. I see you people, but we had a really nice substantive conversation last time, so I just wanted to make a little room um, for some others. 
I want to shout out the heroes who made all the clips from the last episode. As you know, you can download, make a clip and then download it and then post it as an audiogram, which makes it much more likely that people will listen to it and come back and listen to the show and all of your wonderful comments and commentary. I appreciate you. Please take care of yourself. Please stay safe, stay safe, regardless of what the CDC tells you to do. Make your own educated, informed decisions about how to take care of yourself. I appreciate you. And as always, keep the faith. Yeah.